0: Despite all of our divisions, most Americans would say there's something wrong, right? There's something wrong in America. It doesn't feel right. And people can then fill in the blank and tell you what it is they think is wrong, but there's something wrong in America.
1: This is the Daily Civil Podcast for Tuesday, June 13th. I'm Virginia Allen, and that was Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. Senator Rubio says that America experienced its greatest success and prosperity When it had three things, those being strong communities and families, good-paying jobs, and industrial power, all three of these pillars to a strong American society have been devalued and damaged. In his brand new book, Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity, Senator Rubio details how America has surrendered so many of our jobs and industrial power to China and how the family has been harmed. Rubio joins the show to discuss a path forward to restoring America's key foundations. Stay tuned for our conversation after this. We get it, with big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we've put together the Morning Bell Newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to dailysignal.com slash morning subscription, or visit dailysignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page. Decades of decadence. How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity. That is the title of Florida Senator Marco Rubio's brand new book. And the book, it really focuses on exposing the elite's attack on four key elements of American strength. First, good local jobs, then stable families, geographical communities, and a sovereign nation that serves as a beacon of freedom and prosperity. And author, Senator Marco Rubio, he joins us now to talk about this book. Senator, thank you so much for being here.
0: Hey, thank you. Thanks for covering it.
1: Well, this is a really important topic, and I I love that your book addresses, I think, some of, honestly, the, the most critical issues that we are facing in a really big picture that address some underlying concerns that many Americans have and this book in many ways it it calls uh, it calls on the American people to remember that the foundation of our American society is strong families and i know that that's something um, that you feel very strongly about that you're passionate about your your own parents actually migrated to america really lived out that american dream Uh, they came to america in the 1950s correct
0: right that's correct 1956 and then but i had a bunch of uncles aunts family that came throughout the early 60s obviously flaying communism in cuba so it's ingrained in our experience and in in many ways uh, is what i build you know my whole vision, uh, what I think America is at its best and and part of the problems that we're facing now.
1: Yeah. Well, let's dive in and talk about some of those problems. You recount in the book how different the America was that your parents came to experience in the 1950s versus how different the America is that we're seeing today. I don't think anyone would deny that, that America looks pretty different today than it did in the 1950s. But walk us through what some of those key differences are.
0: Well, first, I think the one thing I could tell you, and despite all of our divisions, most Americans would say there's something wrong, right? There's something wrong in America. It doesn't feel right. Uh, And people can then fill in the blank and tell you what it is they think is wrong, but there's something wrong in America. And what I try to do and then I talk about in this book is sort of explain the big picture of what it is. What's this disease that we're dealing with? And, and that's why I talk about what America used to look like. This is not some effort to say we need to go back to the 1960s and 70s and look like that. You can't go back to the past. The future is inevitable. It's going to happen. But what were the foundations of when America has been at its best? And the first is it's been strong communities and strong families. You can't be a strong country without those things, period. And there's only so much we can do in government um, to strengthen families and communities, but there's a lot we can do to undermine them, and we have. The second is you know, the, what supports strong families and communities is good paying jobs, economic growth, wealth, prosperity. All of these are good things. I'm not a socialist. I'm certainly not a communist. I don't think it's evil to make money. Um, but I also think you have to, as a policymaker, your economy doesn't just have to produce wealth. It has to produce opportunity. It has to produce good paying jobs, which is what allows someone to get married, have children, be a member of a community and feel stable in their lives. The third is you can't be a great power if you're not an industrial power. You have to be able to make things. And no matter how innovative you are, if you can't make it, if you depend on someone else for the most important things in your life, medicine, food, uh, your armaments, you're in a lot of trouble. And I think history has borne that out over and over again. Um, These are all important things. All of them have been undermined. Why? Because at the end of the Cold War, the smartest people in the country in both parties said, history's over. From now on, everyone's gonna be a democracy. Everyone's gonna be a free enterprise market economy. Nation state won't matter anymore because we're all gonna be consumers and investors in a global market. In essence, we'll be citizens of the world, and there won't be any fights among countries anymore because they'll be making too much money off each other to get into war. Well, all that was, was a delusion. It, it all ignores 5,500 years of recorded human history. It, it, it ignores everything we know about human nature. China and Russia didn't believe that. Iran doesn't believe that. Uh, other countries don't believe that, but we did. But when you believe that, now you start making public policy, not on the basis of what's in the best interest of America, but what's in the best interest of that new world order, of that global economy, of that global citizenry, whatever it may be, you start making decisions on that basis. And the result is what we face today. And that is the deindustrialization of America, the Rust Belt, the loss of good paying jobs. And to not to belabor the point, but as that was going on, we had a second movement going on in America, initially unrelated. And that was that all of these fundamental truths that are built on common sense, that uh, biological gender is real, uh, the argument that America, from a race standpoint, is worse off today than it was in the 1960s, and is inherently evil, and is built on these evil structures—you uh, name it—down the list you go. That you know, family was not as important as you. Know, you, you we we could actually raise kids through social media in our schools. Uh, that that all of these that, that movement was growing, and it was producing people from higher education that were graduating. They were taking low-level jobs at corporations and big institutions, then they became mid-level managers. Now they're the CEOs. And in charge of the marketing department and they destroy Anheuser-Busch and things like that. So what these two movements have now sort of intersected. They're now operating in conjunction with each other. Because if you're a big multi-global corporation, and you don't think being American is important, you're a, a global company you're going to do whatever it takes to keep those people happy, you'll create a DEI office, you'll go along with their agenda, whatever it may be, because all you're interested in is, you know, making money globally and you don't need the hassle or maybe your CEO believes this stuff because they were produced by the system. And the reverse is true on the other side. It's now gone from an argument in favor of what they claim to be social justice and equity to a hysteria that basically allows us not just to ignore common sense, but to live in the world of fantasy, to pretend that some guy on a stage getting a medal for winning a competition against women is not a man. We have, we, they insist we pretend, and if you don't pretend, then you're a hater and a bigot uh, and, and, and so forth. So these two have now intersected, and it creates a cultural and social crisis in our country that, that I think really threatens our future if we don't correct it.
1: Well, I want to encourage our audience. We're going to take a few more minutes and talk about this crisis and talk about the issues. But there will be a point in this conversation where we get to solutions. So there's hope at the end of the tunnel. But we can't have this conversation without talking about China. And you take a a good amount of time in the book to talk about the influence that China has had on America's economy and specifically on Americans' ability to get jobs. And you go all the way back to about 20 years ago when China when China joined the World Trade Organization, the implications that that had. What were Americans thinking? What was the world thinking would be the result when China entered the, the World Trade Organization?
0: Well, we know what we're thinking because you can see it in the words of President George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, I have tremendous admiration for as a person, as a man, and many of the things he did do uh, probably one of the most qualified people to ever become president, but he said something that proved not to be true, which is, you know, if we open up to China, you know, we're going to export our values. That in essence, we if we went ahead and just fully invested in China, it would change China and ignoring that that is a very ancient civilization and they have a very strong communist party that runs the country. Bill Clinton said the same things. We're not just exporting our goods, we're exporting our values. I think when you read those words and hear those words in hindsight 20, 30 years later, they sound ridiculous. That's not the way it turned out. And we should have known that. And here, here's basically our approach towards China. We, you can, China can make anything they want and sell anything they want in America. We, on the other hand, can't do the same over there. We have to do it based on their, they can do anything they want here, but we can't do anything over there unless they give us permission. And so the Chinese said, well, that's a good deal. We'll take it. And initially they got away with it because everybody's like, don't worry, they're, they're poor, they're just a developing country. Once China gets rich and powerful, they'll become just like us. And then we wake up around 2015 and realize, oh my God, China's rich, China's powerful, and they're not just like us. And it all came at our expense. If you track the numbers from 2001, when they joined the World Trade Organization, Literally, the job and, and, and industrial capacity losses, the factories we lost, the jobs we lost in America can be evenly tracked to the jobs that were gained in the factories that were gained in China. We literally took our industrial base and those jobs and sent it over there because it was more efficient. The market says it's more efficient to make things over there. I agree it is. It's cheaper. It's cheaper to make it there than it is to make it here for a lot of reasons. But I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves now. Even if the, Generally, we want to go in the free market approach because that's what I am and that's what we are. But what if the free market outcome is not good for America? Because it is more efficient, the market says, to make medicine in China. Is it in our national interest to depend on them for 88% of our pharmaceuticals? I think the answer is pretty obvious. And so I think that's the point we are at now, where we realize that when you make policy decisions, it can't just be based on the market. It has to be based on the market, but also on what's in the best interest of the country. And there are times where the pure market outcome is not just not in our best interest, it is hostile to America's best interests.
1: I was very fascinated by something that you wrote in chapter three. You say China's continued growth is inevitable and not something America should try to stop. Walk me through that.
0: Well, I think there's a, a distinction there. The first is China is a large country. Most populous nation on earth has been a great power before, uh, more isolated from the world than they're engaging now. But nonetheless, uh, I think what w- the real point is we shouldn't allow their rise to come at our expense, and we shouldn't allow their rise to to uh, be entirely built on what they steal and from, take from us. In essence, you know, because here's what's gonna happen, an imbalance will develop. If we live in a world in which an imbalance develops between the US and China, we're gonna have a conflict, we're gonna have a war, we're gonna have something much more serious. So an ideal outcome is not that China suddenly collapses and, go, and goes becomes some third world country. I don't think that's what any of us aspire but we can't allow China to become powerful at our expense or to find themselves in a position of dominance over us and the rest of the world. And a lot of it has to do with us. The Chinese are gonna do what the Chinese are gonna do because unlike our leaders for 30 years, Chinese leaders are acting in the best interest of China. We need to start acting in the best interest of America. And if we do that, then I think we're gonna be able to protect our way of life, offer the world a counterbalance to China and continue to be the most influential because I have faith in our system over theirs. But if we somehow play this game where they're playing to win and we're just playing to get along, we're going to lose that game. They're going to win that game and the world's going to look very different. It already is starting to. Uh, be, be, uh, so we're running out of time to get that equation right.
1: So what does that look like practically moving forward? I mean, I'm thinking about just the sheer amount of debt that we owe to China, the amount of money that we borrowed. We are so intertwined. The American economy is so intertwined with China. How do we start to pull that apart?
0: Well, I think part of it, that interdependency has to do with our industrial capability, right? So, for example, you know, there's this hysteria now about more solar panels and more electric cars. Well, we invented the batteries, so we invented those solar panels. The problem is the Chinese make them, and they control the rare earth minerals around the world uh, because they either have contract rights or they have them in China. They can they corner that market. So here's something we invented, and they now control. So it's just one more. But but, but beyond that, I would tell you that whether it's pharmaceuticals or the heavy equipment, you know, the Chinese put out a plan called Made in China 2025, and they literally outline these are the 10 industries we're going to dominate in the 21st century. That's a great roadmap for us to follow in the reverse. So whether it's biomedicine, whether it's heavy machinery and industrial capacity, whether it's agriculture, whether it's uh, the, 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 the ability to build our own weaponry, whether it's um, you, you name it, you go to technology and telecommunications, aerospace, we need to have either an industrial capacity that's here in America or an allied capacity, meaning it's not in America, but it's in Australia or it's in a combination with the UK and our NATO and Indo-Pacific allies and the like. And you've seen some movement in that direction, but that has to continue and it has to be accelerated. So it, it, we, we can no longer be in a position where China, in a time of conflict, be it military conflict or diplomatic geopolitical conflict, can threaten to cut us off. They already do that. They're doing it to Lithuania. They're doing it to Czechia. They've done it to Australia, um, where they cut these countries off of something they basically badly need to punish them for some policy move. We cannot find ourselves in that position. And and that's why we have to rebuild industrial capacity in key sectors in this country or have an allied industrial capacity.
1: Mm -hmm. And in growing that industrial capacity, to what extent – does the government need to be involved? And then what extent do you know? Do we need to have private companies uh, start to move away from that close, really what we've seen in America is a lot of intertwining between companies and the government. What are the results of that? Well, the
0: work has to be done by private companies. I don't believe we should have a U.S.-run factories or U.S.-run automakers or U.S.-run aerospace companies and the like. I do think that we have to prioritize these industries uh, as a matter of, of, of government policy. And 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 that's not unique. I mean, look, if you go back to the 1980s, when the Japanese, who were, you know, in hindsight, not, you know, they were trying to overtake the world, but they threatened to dominate the personal computing market and, and technology. And Ronald Reagan had to take steps to keep that from happening. And that actually, in addition to creating our own industry here, allowed it to spread to these other countries in Asia and diversify that he didn't want to have you know, one country sort of dominating this industry. I think we have to have an industrial policy that reflects that. Now, here are the dangers of industrial policy. Number one, it can't be built on who hires the best lobbyists to convince you that their industry is a key industry for the future. We have to clearly define what are those key industries. Number two, it has to be done the right way. I'll give you an example. I was one of the early supporters of this notion that we have to be able to make semiconductors, those chips in the United States. So you would think I would have voted for the CHIPS Act, which is what they called it and ultimately passed. You know why I didn't? I didn't, because in the end, that bill, though it's called the CHIPS Act, and though they say, yes, it's gonna help the semiconductor industry in America, it allows these private companies to get billions of dollars of federal money and still keep building semiconductors in China, which which to me is ridiculous. And the second is, when I tried to say, okay, if we're gonna spend billions on this, shouldn't we increase our level of security to protect what we're doing? Because we know the Chinese steal what we're doing now. And they fought me and they said, no, we don't want uh, more restrictions because the people doing the research want to continue to collaborate with Chinese researchers and so forth. And so, in essence, you know, if we're going to pass industrial uh, policy like that, then might as well not do it at all because was, we're taking one step forward and two steps back. So that's the danger of it. And, and, but it has to be through private companies. Look, we already have industrial policy, okay? our defense contracting industry. Okay. Boeing... It's a great private company and they make planes for American Airlines and Delta, everybody else. But Boeing doesn't exist without the Department of Defense. And the reason why is because America made a decision. We always have to be able to make our own planes. We can't depend on China or some other country for our airplanes. We have to be able to make our own airplanes. Same with the shipbuilding industry. So I'd like to see there be more people in the defense contracting world, more companies, so they have more competition and better pricing. So we already have industrial policy. It just has to be targeted in the appropriate way to meet the needs and the challenges of this new century
1: so Senator, you end your book really with a question for Americans that we are at this moment of choosing what's what's our path forward here, and what is the choice that lays before Americans?
0: Well, we have two choices. The first is we can continue to be distracted by trivial things in essence that and it's one of the things I fear about it's I'm not calling our social fights are trivial or anything of that nature. But as an example, okay, look, my personal view of the world is the following. I don't care, you know, what people decide, what adults do in in their own lives. I mean, you know, free country, go do whatever you want. I don't think that you have a right to turn the country upside down. I don't think that 0.5% of our population has a right to change the rules for everybody else or use our schools to indoctrinate children on gender, ideology, and things of that nature. So that's problematic. But the second problem is that while we're focused on all this stuff and we're fighting over all these things and these people want to turn our schools and government agencies are opening up entire DEI divisions, we're not focusing on their core missions. So why is the military spending so much time focused on these DEI issues instead of focusing on China trying to blow up our aircraft carriers and dominate the Indo-Pacific region? I would say the same for our spy agencies. I would say the same for all of our government agencies. They should be focused on that It's not like we're crushing it in world standards on education and math, science, technology, but yet our schools are so focused on this cultural stuff and DEI and indoctrination, they need to be more focused on the emergency we have in this country about the very basic and elemental skills that you need to be successful in our economy. It is distracting us from our core mission. And that's part of that decadence, this notion that, you know, for 30 years, we're the most powerful and only superpower. We could do whatever we wanted. We had the luxury of being decadent. We had the luxury of being complacent. We don't have that luxury anymore. And we need to really move on it very quickly because we've already wasted too much time. We don't have another 10 years to figure this out. In 10 years, some of this becomes at least irreversible for a generation if not longer.
1: Mm. Senator, thank you. The book is Decades of Decadence. How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity. The book is out on June 13th, today, Tuesday. You can get it wherever books are sold. But Senator, before I let you go, uh, I do want to get your thoughts on the indictment of former President Donald Trump. This is the second time the president has been indicted. The first indictment was, of course, in New York. And now this latest indictment is in your state of Florida. A federal court in Miami has indicted him. Trump says he's innocent. What do you think?
0: Here's my way I view this. And it's a nuanced answer, I admit, but, but, but I support people to understand it. There is something called prosecutorial discretion, right? And that is you weigh, all right, what is the harm that was caused here versus the harm of prosecution or the benefit of prosecution, right? So I'm not saying that, that, that President Trump is guilty. I'm, I'm not saying that. But let's just assume for a moment that some of the things they say or we've seen in the press leaks are, are accurate, just based on what we know. I don't know what other things might come out, whatever it might be. I honestly believe that the harm, the harm, whatever harm was created by documents being stored, be they in Biden's garage or Mar-a-Lago or wherever, is far outweighed by the harm of this, bringing this indictment, far outweighed. Why? This is already a volatile country. This is already a dangerously polarized country. And now you are now on top of that going to pour gasoline with an indictment that you know That you know a significant plurality of Americans, significant percentage, are going to say that's political. And it comes on the heels of Two impeachments, including one after he was out of office. The the indictment in in New York. Now this one, a, another thing going on in Georgia, a lawsuit in another New York court. Um, the 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 whole dossier thing that turned our country for two and a half years. That's all they focused on. It comes after, and so people look at that and say, "Hold on a second. No, this is a two tier system of government. This feels like our institutions are being politicized." So it doesn't just threaten to divide our country irreparably even further and pour gasoline on this. It's going to do two things. It undermines confidence in important institutions. Guys, we need an FBI that works. We need a Justice Department that people have confidence in. This is going to undermine confidence in that. And at the same time, as, as that's going on, I, I think you also have to ask yourself, you know, how do we come back from it? What happens now? The next Republican president is going to be under tremendous pressure to do the same thing to a Democrat. And then we become the third world. And so I think the harm this promises to do to America far outweighs as far as I can see, any of the alleged harms that might have been caused by this. And um, and, and I, I think that's just a consideration here that, that hasn't uh, that hasn't been taken into account. And, and I, I'm really concerned about what this is going to do to our country and at a minimum how it's going to paralyze our ability to deal with some of these important issues we talked about in my book.
1: Mm. Senator, thank you. The book is Decades of Decadence. Thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate it.
0: All right. Thank you. Thanks for covering this.
1: And with that, that's gonna do it for today's episode. Again, if you would like to pick up a copy of the Senator's book, it is out and available today. The book title is Decades of Decadence, How Our Spoiled Elites Blew America's Inheritance of Liberty, Security, and Prosperity. It's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever books are sold. And in the meantime, if you haven't gotten the chance, be sure to check out our evening show. It's right here in the same podcast feed where we bring you the top news of the day. Also, make sure to take just a moment to subscribe to the Daily Signal Podcast, wherever you like to listen, and give us your feedback and leave a five-star rating and review. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful Tuesday. We'll see you right back here this evening around 5 p.m. for our top news edition.
0: The Daily Signal Podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.